Let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14 this morning. We continue on in our study of the last week of the life of Jesus Christ. Mark really takes a lot of time to to explain these details. And here we have the struggle between the religious leaders and Jesus coming to a climax. Jesus really was defiant to the Jewish way of life. He had said some pretty thought-provoking things. And uh, Dr. McLean in his uh, theology book says there are at least six things that Jesus said that was against the Jewish way of life. He says, first of all, He set high spiritual requirements and made them essential to entrance into the kingdom. That they were to repent and believe in the gospel that He had offered to them. Second reason why Jesus was defiant to the Jewish way of life was that He came to establish not merely a social and political kingdom, but also a spiritual kingdom, which they were not ready to accept. Thirdly, Jesus denounced the current Jewish religious system with all its traditionalism and legalism and ritualism. Fourthly, Jesus loathed their ruling classes. He said that the greatest among you should be a servant, the servant of all. Fifthly, He associated with and had compassion for the outcasts of Israel. You remember when the Pharisees came and saw Jesus eating with sinners, they were they were shocked and abhorred at what He was doing. How could you eat with these people? And yet Jesus had love for even those people who were even seen as outcasts. And then the sixth, thing, sixth way in which Jesus was defiant against the Jewish way of life was that He exalted Himself over them. He became and uh, exemplified Himself as their leader. Now, this is not a problem in and of itself. If there was a person who came and was a leader over them, a self-proclaimed leader over them, and allowed them to continue in their sin, they would have had no problem. But because He was there to show them that they had been rejecting the true God, and that they hated God, and that they needed to turn from their sin, they would not accept His leadership. And all of these things really steamed the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Sanhedrin. And not only did the religious leaders hate Jesus, the political leaders also did. We know this from the very beginning of Jesus' life when Herod the Great tried to have him killed when he found out that there was going to be born the king of the Jews. So he had all the babies killed under two years old. And then his son, Herod Antipas, later beheaded one of the, the key God-ordained leaders that, that presented and prepared the way for Jesus, John the Baptist. And although these political leaders, the Herodians and others, hated the Pharisees, they hated the, the religious leaders, generally speaking, they came together in collusion against Jesus. They had a common enemy. And we'll see... Later, uh, actually, I don't think Mark records it, but Pilate and and uh, Herod actually become friends on the day of Jesus' trial. They actually become friends because they both have the same enemy. And all this is coming to a climax here in the trial of Jesus Christ, which we read about today. 
Let's begin reading in chapter 14, verse 53. We'll read down through verse 65. They led Jesus away to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build it another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is this that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, Prophesy! And the officers received him with slaps in the face. The religious leaders obstinately tried to convince themselves that Jesus was worthy of death. We see the setting in verses 53 and verses and 54. There were two main trials that Jesus had to endure before he was led to the cross. There was both a Jewish trial and a Roman trial. Each trial had three main parts. The first part of the Jewish trial was Jesus' trial before Annas, the former high priest. The former high priest Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And he was deposed by the Roman government. They didn't like the way that he led, and so they got rid of him. But he was still highly respected among the Jewish people. They still went to him for advice, and so this is exactly what happens with Jesus. They take him before their former high priest, Annas. This is recorded in John chapter 18, verses 13 through 24. We won't study that one, but just so you know how, how this works. Next was the trial before Caiaphas. Jesus comes before the the current ruling high priest. Caiaphas is the son-in-law of Annas, and he is the the current ruler over all of the high priests, over all the Sanhedrin. And this is the, the trial that we're going to be looking at this morning. The third part of the Jewish trial was the trial before the council, which is really kind of uh, coupled with the trial before the high priest. And we'll see this at the end, that the, high, that the council, that is the Sanhedrin, actually make a decision at the end of this trial with the high priest. And we see this in chapter 15, verse 1. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council, or the whole Sanhedrin, immediately held a consultation and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. 
So this trial before Caiaphas and the, the council ends and they move him on to the next part of the trial. So that's the Jewish trial, the religious portion of the trial. Now, they're, now he's being uh, brought before the Roman government, trumped up with charges against him for trying to usurp their authority. And the Roman government as well had three parts. First, there was a trial before Pilate. We'll see this in chapter 15, verses 2 through 5 when we come to it. And then from Pilate's trial, Pilate's not sure about Jesus. He's not sure exactly where he stands. So he sends him over to Herod, Herod Antipas. And that's not recorded for us here in Mark, but it is recorded in Luke chapter 23. Herod Antipas was the self-proclaimed uh, ruler of Galilee. He called himself a king. And he, although he was more of a tetrarch, he, he called himself a king and he ruled over this client state that, that really pointed back to the Roman Empire. He tried to make it a Roman city like Rome wanted him to do. And so, um, so you have Herod. So Pilate sends him to Herod and then Herod sends him back to Pilate. This is really the third part of the Roman trial and that's recorded for us here in Mark chapter 15, verses 6 through 15. So what we have there in Mark 15 is actually two trials before Pilate, um, but it's, it, Mark records it as if it, it were one. Well, what you need to recognize is that there was a trial before Herod in between these two trials. The people at the trial that we're going to be talking about now really is the second part of that Jewish trial, the trial before Caiaphas, the high priest. I already mentioned that he's there, but also the council. You see this in verse 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest, Caiaphas, and, also, and, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. There were 70 members of the Sanhedrin, 70 members of the council, and they are the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. This is where the Pharisees and the Sadducees would have have been uh, ruling. And they were given great authority by the Roman government to take care of the affairs of their Jewish people. You have to remember that in Jerusalem, in the, in the, the area of Israel, there were just lots of Jews. They weren't all Romans, obviously. And so the Romans were, were thinking, you know, you just take care of your problems as much as you can. However, you cannot condemn someone to be executed on your own. You need to send them to us. We are the ones who will determine whether they should be executed. You take care of all these menial matters, but they were given a lot of authority by the Roman government. And so it appears that all 70 are there. However, we know from other parts of Scripture that, that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were also part of this group. And because they condemned Jesus to death, uh, I believe that they actually were not a part of this gathering here, so probably didn't have the entire 70 people. Uh, there are probably a, a few less. The people that were near the trial, we find in verse 54, Peter and also the officers, that they were inside the courtyard of this palace. So this, they would come to this palace of the high priest, and apparently in the middle of this place was a courtyard where Peter and others were warming themselves by the fire. We'll look at him more next week. And what we find in this, in this uh, trial is that they had already made up their mind. They already knew what they wanted to do. And so this passage really breaks down for us in three ways. First, we see their plan in verse 55. And then the process in verses 56 through 62. 
and then the product in verses 63 through 65. So let's look at the plan, first of all, in verse 55. What was their plan? Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put Him to death, and they were not finding any. Was their plan to see if to see that justice be carried out in this situation. They wanted to see if the truth would come out. Was that their plan? Not at all. It says that they were trying to obtain false testimony against them. They were trying to obtain testimony so that they could condemn Him to death. And so really they had a premature verdict. They already knew what the outcome was going to be. They already had their minds made up. They wanted to convict Him because they had already assumed that he was guilty. They used what is called, even in our day, circular reasoning. They determine the outcome before they even look at the proof. So we could, I'll give you a couple examples. We could say, Santa Claus must exist because he is real. Okay? Now, you either agree with that statement or you disagree. The reason that you would disagree with that statement is because you don't agree with the premise that He is real. You see, it starts with the premise. Santa Claus is real. And if Santa Claus is real, then the, then the, the verdict must also be real. Then He must exist. It's circular reasoning. But if you deny the premise that Santa Claus is real, then you also deny the conclusion. We have people in our day that, that make this statement. It's also known as circular reasoning. Evolution must be true because it is a fact. Okay? The premise, evolution is a fact. If that's true, then it must be true. But if you deny the premise, then you've also denied the conclusion because they're the same. This is exactly what's happening with the chief priests. By the way, both of those statements are false. Okay? The premise in both of those are incorrect. So the conclusion also is... So what the chief priests are doing are basically saying, Jesus is guilty, therefore He must be convicted of death, convicted to die. But if you deny the premise that He is not guilty, then you also have to deny the conclusion. See, it's circular reasoning. They've already made up their mind. They've already determined the verdict before the evidence was even weighed. Notice the process in verses 56 through 62 begins with faulty evidence. Their plan was to prosecute Jesus and condemn Him to death, but so far their witnesses were not panning out. And there are several things that we could say about their witnesses, but we'll say at least three. Look at verse 56. For many were giving false testimony against Him, but their testimony was not consistent. Okay, so there. We know at least three things about these witnesses. They, they were many. Many were giving. They, they were giving false witness. So they were giving false testimony. And then thirdly, we know that they're inconsistent. That their testimonies didn't even line up with each other. Look at verse 59. You see that again. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. Even Caiaphas knew that their testimony was not consistent. And this was a huge problem because in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, we find that, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, one can be convicted of a given crime. 
But in other words, if they're not in agreement with one another, then a person cannot be convicted. And Mark records for us at least two times that their testimony was inconsistent. They were not in agreement with one another, and so their testimony was invalid. We see an example of this false testimony in verses 57 and 58. Some stood up and and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Notice their charge. Their charge is that Jesus said what? I will destroy this temple. Now, there's two problems with this charge. Number one, did Jesus ever say, I will destroy this temple? Turn to John chapter 2. This is the event that they're referring to. This happened early in Jesus' ministry. It actually happened at the time of the first the first time that he cleansed the temple. He he cleansed the temple, you remember, later on in life, uh not a not a week or two before what we're talking about right now. But this is actually referring to the first time that he cleansed the temple in John chapter two, verse eighteen. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? So Jesus cleanses the temple and they come to him and say, How do you have the right? Who who gave you the authority to do this? Verse 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, uh, The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? Okay, so the first problem with their claim at this trial is that they say that Jesus said, I will destroy this temple. But what does Jesus say here? The time to which they are referring, most likely. He says, he basically implies that they will destroy it. He says, you destroy this temple and I will raise it up. So the first problem is that he never said that he would destroy the temple. And the second problem is he wasn't referring to the temple. Look at verse 21. John helps us here. He says, But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So they come up with this charge, which turns out to be the main charge for which, one of the main charges for which he is convicted. They say, You said, I will destroy this temple. But Jesus never said that. And he wasn't referring to the Jewish temple. He's referring to his own body. So, so why would the the witnesses make such a claim? Obviously, we know their intentions. They want to convict him. But I think also this, this earlier statement that they had heard Jesus say directly, or at least these witnesses apparently had heard him say, was probably coupled with what Judas had also said about the temple. Turn to Mark chapter 13, verse 1. Now here, Jesus is alone with his disciples. And the disciples are marveling at how beautiful this temple is. Notice what Jesus says in chapter 13, verse 1 of Mark's Gospel. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, 
Behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. See, I think this is one of the reasons that the religious leaders needed Judas. Not just to show him where he was when he was in the mountain praying, but also to bring up more charges against Jesus. So they coupled this first statement, I believe, with that Jesus had said that the temple will be destroyed and I will raise it up after three days. And also what what Judas had said, that this temple will be destroyed. Maybe Judas connected the dots himself where he shouldn't have. To think that Jesus was actually talking, uh, was, was combining these two statements. He didn't recognize that Jesus had been talking about his own body. So the witnesses come up with this false testimony but they failed to indict Jesus. Now, up until now, it probably was pretty chaotic. There was probably one person standing up after another, bringing testimony before him, and uh, probably some clapping and, and some cheers and some laughter, some mocking. And now in verses 60 through 62, the high priest steps forward, realizing that none of these charges can be accepted. And I can imagine that all becomes silent. Maybe he calls order time for me to speak. And so he goes on the attack in verses 60 and 61. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus saying, do you not answer? What is this that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Why do you suppose that Jesus remained silent? Couldn't he just have vindicated himself at that point? Part of the answer is, I believe, that it would have revealed his his uh, actually his silence actually revealed his innocence. Sometimes it's wise to be silent, as we find Solomon telling us in Proverbs chapter twenty-six, verse four: "Do not answer answer a fool according to his folly, or else you'll become just like him." Sometimes it's wise to simply be silent. But I think the second part of that answer, why Jesus was silent, is also because the scriptures were to be fulfilled in this way. Psalm 38, verses 13 through, 40, 13 through 14, and also Isaiah 53, 7, says that He, this Messiah, was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so He did not open His mouth. Jesus recognized that He was there to fulfill the Scriptures and what they said about Him. And so He didn't speak, but Caiaphas, at the end of verse 61, does get Him to speak. Notice the second part of verse 61. Again, the high priest was questioning Him and saying to Him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus answers in verse 62. What Caiaphas is asking is, Are you the Christ? Christ is the New Testament way of saying Messiah. In fact, the word Christ in the New Testament is the Greek translation of the Old Testament word Messiah. They're the same thing. So whenever you see Jesus Christ, we're not talking about first and last name. We're talking about Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. And so what Caiaphas is asking him is, are you the Messiah? And then he follows it up with the Son of the Blessed One. Now, he didn't say Son of God because, you remember, Jews held the name of God very sacredly. 
They felt that his name was too sacred to even speak or write. And so they would use an alternate name like Heaven or the Blessed One or something like that. Um, they had another name for him, Adonai, which is Lord, that the Jews would often use. And so here he uses an alternate name of God, not of, out of irreverence, but actually out of reverence for God. And so he's saying here, Jesus, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? These are the charges that have come against you. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And so really he's combining both Christ's Messiahship, that is that He is the promised one, and His deity, that He is God. See, in the, Jew, the Jews' minds, they didn't recognize that this Messiah would actually be the Son of God. They felt that this man would be a great man and that he would relieve them from oppression, but they didn't recognize that he would be God. They didn't see that these prophecies in the Old Testament referred specifically to the Messiah when it's talked about His, his deity. And Jesus answers in verse 62, and Jesus said, I am. Now, why would Jesus answer when we just said that Jesus was to be silent? Why does he now answer? I think we find the, the response to that question in Matthew chapter 26, verse 63. You don't have to turn there. But Matthew records more details for us, and he says that, that Caiaphas placed a solemn oath on Jesus. He said, I adjure you by the name of God in heaven. Okay, he probably didn't say God, but by the blessed one in heaven, for example, that, that you answer me. And according to Leviticus 5, verse 1, a person was required to break his silence if someone brought down a solemn oath on them. And so Jesus, in keeping with the law, I believe, responded to his accuser. And he responds with the covenant name of God, Yahweh, which is I am. It means I am what I am. And this is how Jesus responds in verse 62. He says simply, I am, pointing back to his deity. And Jesus could have just as easily avoided conviction if he simply denied that he was the Son of God. You know what? I'm not who you say I am. And he could have denied it and, and been freed but instead he acknowledges that he is. He claims his own deity, and then he continues on in the rest of verse 62 and talks about his own sovereign rule over the people. He talks about the fact that he is the judge. Look at verse 62. And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Saying to them, Yes, I am who you say I am. And I will be seen as the judge of all the earth one day. You will even see that I am the judge. He combines both Psalm 110 and Daniel chapter 7 and applies them to himself that you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. And what he's saying is that I won't prove who I am to you right now. I'm not going to reveal myself to you while you're scoffing at me. You wouldn't believe me even if I did. But there will come a day when it will be clear. In other words, do you want proof that I am the Messiah, the Son of God? 
The proof will come on that day when we are in different positions. When you are on trial before me. And on that day, it will be very clear who is right in this trial before you today. You will know that I am the judge of all the earth. So Jesus makes his point. The product of the trial is found in verses 63 through 65. Final verdict comes. Verse 63, tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? High priest goes along with the normal operations of their court. He talks now to the council and says, What do you think now? You've heard the blasphemy that he said. He said that he is God. It's time to convict. We find out in chapter 15, verse 1, that they actually spend most of the night deliberating But they do come out with the final verdict, the one that they had intended to come to at the very beginning. And in verse 63, it begins by saying that the high priest tore his clothes. You remember this from the Old Testament where people would tear their clothes as a sign of mourning. How could this be that someone would blaspheme in this way, that they would call themselves God? And so he rips his clothes in mourning. And then he calls for the verdict and the Sanhedrin charges him with blasphemy. Now, from from a Jewish perspective, there were at least five problems with this verdict. First of all, no trial was to be given at night. We know that this happens at night because Jesus comes from the Passover meal, which was to be eaten between sunset and midnight. So they were eating during that time, and then he goes to Gethsemane to pray, And apparently that was for an hour or maybe several hours, at least an hour we know. And so this was happening in the middle of the night. And then next morning, according to chapter 15, verse 1, they finally come to a conclusion. So no trial was to be given at night. No Jewish trial was to be given at night. Secondly, second problem with this trial is that that the verdict was supposed to take a whole day. In other words, you were supposed to have the trial during the day and then the very next day would be the day you actually came to a verdict. Yeah, what we have here here is that both the trial and the verdict come on the same night. Thirdly, the third problem with this trial was that witnesses witnesses were only supposed to relate true first-hand testimony. We know from Mark's Gospel that, that they were coming with false testimony and they were not even consistent with what they were saying. And then fourthly, Uh, trials were not supposed to be held in the palace of the high priest. And yet we find in verse 54 that they were in the high priest. Peter had come into the courtyard of the high priest looking up to the trial that was above going on. And that's exactly where they were. Now some argue that this was simply more like a police interrogation, not an official trial. But we know from the verdict that comes down at the end in chapter 15, verse 1, that indeed it was a real trial and that their conviction came on the same night as the trial. Either way, what they were doing was not according to what their own rules had had uh, established. And at the heart of the trial was not truth, was not, try, was not a search for truth and justice. At the heart of the trial was the Jews' hatred for God, wasn't it? 
they had unanimous agreement against this man. And really, this Jewish council's decision was not anything new. It wasn't like they came up with a brand brand new uh, verdict on this man or on the man or on the person who he represents, God. This is a decision that had been made throughout all the ages by all of their former fathers. And now they were simply affirming what their fathers had already done, had done, and that is that they had rejected the true and living God. And now they were rejecting God in the form of His Son, Jesus Christ. And they were basically saying to this man and to the, man, the, the person who He represented, God, that we don't want you to be our king. We want a king of our own making. And isn't that what Jesus predicted in Mark chapter 12? He said, there was, a, there was a vineyard. And the owner of the vineyard, he set it up all nice. And he knew that there was going to be great prosperity in this vineyard. And yet, when it was time for harvest, he sent some servants to go and, and receive some of the harvest back. As owner of the vineyard, he deserved whatever he wanted from that vineyard. And yet, the workers of the vineyard, they would beat some of the servants. They would kill others. And then finally, the owner said, you know what? I'm going to send my son. Surely they must treat him well. And yet, when, they, when God sent his son, the owner of the vineyard sent his son, the vineyard growers killed him as well. See, the Jews have just been doing, have just concluded what their fathers had always been doing, rejecting God. Now, we understand that there are obviously people uh, of the Jewish race that have not rejected God, but you understand what I'm saying. As a whole, they rejected Christ. They rejected God. They didn't want Him to be their king. In the end of that parable, Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do to these people? What will He do? He will take them out and He will judge them. They hated God. They hated God being their King. And they hated that Jesus came claiming to be in the form of God. And their hatred is seen in verse 65. Some began to spit at Him and to blindfold Him and to beat Him with their fists and to say to Him, Prophesy! And the officers received Him with slaps in the face. Or as the NIV says, the guards took him and beat him. Probably a better translation there at the end. You know what's happening here. They covered his face and they said, prophesy, or as Matthew records, tell us who struck you. If you're supposed to be this one who, who prophesies, then let's see it. What's amazing about that statement is that while Jesus was being struck and while they were telling him to prophesy, one of his prophecies was coming true. Not only, not only that he was being beaten, but also that, that Peter was betraying him. This was happening at the same time in the courtyard. And they didn't recognize that this was the king of all kings. The Jews already had their minds made up. They already knew what they wanted to do to this Christ. And you know, in our world, we come across people who already have their mind made up. 
Oh, they make excuses for why they can't accept this God. They make excuses why they can't accept God's Word. They make excuses why they can't accept Jesus Christ. But they've already got their mind made up. They're happy to include Jesus in their life. They're happy to put Him on the shelf of their selfish desires, but only as long as He contributes something to their lives. When He starts to infringe on the way that they live or on the pleasures that they're enjoying, when He calls for them to, to give up some things and turn from others, then, then that Jesus is going to go right, right with them. Because they have no room for someone who's going to, to tell them what they ought to do. I saw a bumper sticker the other day that said, Try Jesus. If you don't like Him, I'm sure the devil will take you back. Do you understand that Jesus cannot be given a trial period? We cannot put the King of the universe on trial as if He were some uh, he, he were given to us by some vacuum salesman. Just give it a try. Add Him to your life for a little while. If you like it, take it. If not then you can always go back to your former way of life. Accepting Christ is not like buying a vacuum. There's no sampling of the King of the universe. You either recognize your position before Him or you stand condemned with Him as your judge. There's no trial period. God accepts no rivals. We can't try out different religions and then choose the best one. We simply recognize that God is who He said He was, who He said He is, and that Jesus is His best representative. We need to recognize our own sin before this holy God. And although people on occasion and many times have their minds made up about what they're going to do with God, that shouldn't cause us to give up on them. We simply continue to be persistent with them. The power of God and the Gospel is such that it penetrates even the darkest and hardest of hearts, doesn't it? It penetrated your heart, didn't it? It penetrated my heart. Our hearts are all hard at one time. And so we just continue to help them to see, help them to stand before the thrice holy God, help them to see their their position before Him, that their sin is an affront to what God is. And that it demands repentance and faith. And that all who come in that way will be accepted by Jesus Christ. That's the great story of salvation. We should also recognize from this passage that Jesus is coming in judgment. Don't ever be fooled by the sparkle and the glow of this world, the beauty of it, in the sense that the things that it has to offer are better than the eternal things that Christ has set out before you. Because you do not want to be on the wrong side of God's wrath. You do not want to be where these Jewish people will be, these leaders who rejected Him. And they recognize that He is the King of kings and that they were wrong in their conviction, their trial, their verdict. There will be a time of great judgment and we do not want to be on the wrong side of that judgment. Salvation doesn't come from believing that Jesus was innocent. It's not enough. It requires belief in and a 
consent to and an unreserved trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ that Jesus has done enough to satisfy God's wrath, that He took upon Himself the wrath that you and I deserved. And we recognize where we stand before God and that only Christ can take our place, that we can't do enough on our own. We don't get helped along to salvation. We simply have to rest, completely rest in Jesus Christ, recognizing that He has to take our place. If you haven't believed in Jesus Christ, it's not too late. There will come a day when God's long-suffering does come to an end, where His judgment will be real and there will be no more time for you to make a decision. But that time is not yet. You see, God is slow to anger and He is abounding in love and he is, he is opening His ear to all who are willing to repent and believe. And Jesus is the one who will sit on this throne. He deserves that right because He has conquered sin and death. He conquered it through the cross and it was affirmed in the resurrection. When God raised Him from the dead, He said, Yes, I accept your payment. That we have the double cure of sin like we just sang about. That it both saves us from wrath and it makes us pure. God says, Yes, I accept your sacrifice on their behalf. On their behalf. And the resurrection is proof that I do. Christian, don't give up in the race. Don't ever believe for a moment that Satan is winning and that Christ is losing. God has all things under control and He's working out everything for His greatest glory. So we as believers ought to show that we love Him by remaining faithful to Him and by calling other people to do the same. That day of judgment is coming. And we need to make sure that we are standing in Christ on that day. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we need no other argument, no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died for me. There's nothing more that we need. We don't have to add to it. We don't have to uh, to to earn Your favor. Christ has already done so. And because we cannot satisfy Your demand of perfection, You accept in the place of perfection, repentance and faith. So for any here who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, I pray that, that, that salvation would come to them today, that Your Holy Spirit would help them to see their sin and their need to turn to You and to Jesus Christ to save them. And I pray that they would respond out of a heart that has been changed by the regeneration process that comes through the Holy Spirit. Lord, we are saddened by how our Lord was treated. But shamefully, we recognize that if we were in that position, we would do the same thing if it were not for Your grace. So we thank You for Your grace and we pray that as Christians, we would stand up and fight hard in this battle against sin 
and against this world that is in rebellion against You. I pray that You give us the resolve to continue on, the strength to to uh, be able to stand up in the midst of trial, and that we would find our refuge, our strength, our rock in the Word of God which You have left for us. The way in which You reveal Yourself to us and show Your glory to us in this age. May we never give up in the race that is set before us, but help us to look unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now set down at Your right hand. One day we'll come back in great glory and power and all the world will know that He is God and that there is none like You. And at that day, Lord, we understand that it will be too late to decide. The day of judgment will be too late. So we pray that You would work in hearts in those who, who do need to turn to You. Help us to follow and to obey You, and to love You as we do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been talking...